Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Tom, Donald Trump fired John Bolton. Now there's a little uh, whizzing war here between Trump and Bolton over whether, did you fire him or did he quit? <laughs> this is incredible. John Bolton tweeted, I offered to resign. Donald Trump tweeted, I informed John Bolton last night that his services are no longer needed at the White House. I disagreed strongly with many of his suggestions, as did others in the administration. And therefore, I asked John for his resignation, which was given to me this morning. Right. But Bolton tweets that last night he offered to resign and Trump said, well, let's talk about it tomorrow. Trump is such a coward. He can't even fire a guy in person. He says, let's, let's talk about it tomorrow. And then tomorrow morning, that's this morning, he, Trump tweets, Bolton's fired. My idea. You're fired. Right. John Bolton, the guy who wants war with every place, he didn't choose to serve in Vietnam. This whole chicken hawk phenomena is absolutely fascinating. The Trump campaign is now selling camouflage clothing on the website in order to raise money for the Trump re-election campaign and probably some grift that involves the Trump crime family. You can buy this camo stuff and Don Jr. is modeling it and everybody's freaking out because there's a stain on one of the shirts. But really, I find it so weird that Corporal Bone Spurs, the guy who got five deferments from Vietnam, Donald Trump, is selling camouflage gear. But I think there's a larger issue. John Bolton is also one of those chicken hawks when there was a war and he had an opportunity to serve, eh, no thanks. But when he gets in power and he can send other people's children to a war, he's just gung-ho enthusiastic for that. So uh, good riddance. I'm, uh, this, is, this is actually good news for America and for the world that John Bolton is no longer in a position of power in this administration. Now, he'll probably end up on Fox News, uh, you know, agitating for war all the time, which we're going to talk about in some more detail a little later on in the program today. But the question that I find fascinating and that I would like to ask right off and get right up there is if Donald Trump gets reelected and the Republicans continue to control the Senate, in other words, if the status quo remains, or even if they took the House, or even if they don't have the Senate, but we just have Trump in the White House, 
What could be the worst outcome? What do you think could be the worst outcome? Would it be a further transfer of wealth from the middle class to the very rich? Would it be greater and greater student debt burdens on working people? Would it be the acceleration or the destruction of our environment? I mean, these are all things that I think are fairly predictable that would happen if Republicans continue to control our government and if they continue to control the majority of our states, by the way. And Trump takes the White House. Will he launch a final assault on the news media? He was basically tweeting at this right-wing billionaire controls a large chunk of AT&T stock. AT&T controls CNN. So Trump is saying, yeah, you know, CNN is bad. You know, let's turn them into Fox News. Are we going to see all of our media turn into Fox News? I mean, it slowly seems to be happening. Stories are not, frankly, being reported in context. Will McConnell's judges with lifetime appointments kneecap enforcement against white-collar crime? We already saw this, you know, with the so-called criminal justice reform. It didn't actually have anything to do with the vast majority of people in prison. It affected a couple thousand people with marijuana convictions in federal prisons. Mostly it was white-collar crime. And it made it a lot harder to go after corporate CEOs. That was the criminal justice reform. But what are these corrupt judges going to be doing? How much damage will be done by the Trump war on science and the Republican war on science? You know, whether it's getting in bed with evangelicals and saying that there's no such thing as evolution, whether it's getting in bed with the fossil fuel industry and saying that there's no such thing as global climate change, or if it does, it's just a natural phenomenon. They don't, you know, it doesn't matter how many billions of tons of carbon we've thrown into the atmosphere in the last 150 years. Will the religious fundamentalists the Jerry Falwell Juniors and Franklin Grahams of the world step up their campaign to burrow deeply into our political parties, particularly the Republican Party, and subvert the, further subvert the separation of church and state. These guys have been proudly preaching politics from the pulpit, basically since President Obama was elected in these white evangelical churches, and defying the IRS. You know, this is, you're supposed to lose your tax-exempt status if you do this. And they're like, you know, just, you know, I dare you. In fact, a bunch of them, there was a day back, you know, this was when President Obama was in office. There was, there was a day where they all did it on the same Sunday. Intentionally. Like they signed an agreement, you know, a pledge. Yes, we will talk politics in the pulpit. Take, you know, we dare you, Obama. And of course, you know, the Obama administration didn't do anything about it, and the Trump administration obviously won't do anything about it. So how much worse could that get? Will the world be plunged into war with Iran or Venezuela? Trump right now, we have troops on the border of Venezuela. Well, Trump is pushing Venezuela really hard. He's trying to topple Maduro. Oh my God, the guy's a socialist. His sanctions are causing real pain in both those countries. Bolton leaving, I suppose, gives us a little encouragement in that regard, but uh, I'm not sure how much. Netanyahu this morning announced some new annexation of Palestinian territories in Israel. This is probably not going to go over well in Israel with the Palestinians. And, you know, is this going to further inflame the region? This is part of Netanyahu's, I mean, he's up for his election is next week, I believe. So he's reaching out to the hard right in Israel the same way that Trump is reaching out to the hard right here in the United States. 
So could we be looking at a war? How uh, Trump has got his own little police agency, his own little kind of SS in ICE going out and seizing immigrants and throwing them in for-profit detention centers. These big for-profit corporations, you and I, our tax dollars are paying them $750 a day to hold these undocumented immigrants. Is Trump going to turn that fire on progressives, on liberals? They're laying the ground for this right now across right-wing media talking about the violence of Antifa. If you're opposed to fascism, you're violent. Is their shtick. They go out and try and provoke violence and then complain about it. So will they begin rounding up liberals? Are they going to be looking at your Facebook page to see who you support? How might Trump's privatized prisons and concentration camps be expanded in order to generate more profit for his billionaire buddies and, hey, special bonus, get rid of his political opponents? How about the pesticides? You know, there's this, this pesticide that was supposed to be banned last year, maybe it was early this year, because it's a potent neurotoxin. It damages children's nervous systems. And the Trump administration said, eh, we don't care. You know, they got heavily lobbied by the, by the pesticide industry. It's a very profitable pesticide, apparently. Cheap to make. Expensive to sell. And now it's being sprayed on, on you know, millions of acres of our food. How much more, how much more toxic is our environment going to get? How many more bees are going to die? and all pollinators for that matter. What about his deregulation of pollution? You know, rolling back the CAFE standards, the, the car emission standards, so that cars and diesel trucks can blow more soot and more exhaust and more poison and more carbon into the atmosphere. So that Americans, I think the number was $16 billion more that Americans will spend if the increase in fuel standards does not go through. In other words, if we go along with Trump's cutback on these fuel standards and these emission standards, you and I, well actually, I drive a car that has a gasoline engine. It's a Prius electric plug-in, but the first 30 miles is all electric. I don't think I've bought a, a one tank of gas all year. Maybe one, maybe two. Louise and I drove up towards Seattle once and over to the seacoast once, and those are the only times we've used gasoline all year. But most people are using gasoline, and that expense will continue if we don't make cars more efficient. Not to mention the explosion of cancer and other diseases. You see all these ads on TV for things that deal with asthma and all these autoimmune disorders where the immune system is just going nuts. You know, there's a fair amount of evidence that this is like all tied into a toxic environment around us. How much worse will things get if the Republicans retain control? Will there be further tax cuts for the billionaires? Will wages on working people continue to decline? Will the war on unions be doubled down on? You know, virtually all the jobs that have been created since Donald Trump came into office have been either part-time jobs or jobs with no benefits and where people are working at will, basically, you know, gig kind of jobs. 
very, very few you know, good jobs with real benefits and, and you can expect to work there for multiple years. Very few of those kind of jobs have been created now. How much worse is that going to get? What am I missing here? You know, I know some people try to get their CBD by uh, vaping. I've heard, you know, now there's all this concern about vaping, you know, we'll look out. Um, but, you know, the, the, really the best way to get CBD is to get pure CBD oil and just, you know, put it in your mouth. It's, it's good stuff. Uh, it actually tastes pretty good, too. And the brand that I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals CBD oil is spectacular. It's non-intoxicated, doesn't get you high. Uh, so it's ideal if you want the health benefits of cannabinoids without, you know, the problems with medical marijuana. It's non-toxic. It has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the USA. The only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's N-U-LeafNaturals.com, and save 30% and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to N-U-LeafNaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. There's got to be a few other things we can add to this list. What kind of dystopian future might we be facing if the Republicans seize power? We're talking about how bad can it get? And beyond that, there's a fascinating study Eric Bowler was writing about this over at Daily Kos, but it has been reported on in a number of places. This research organization got a bunch of people together and signed them up for basically a media diet. They were only going to get their news through this one media portal. I think it was over a thousand people. These folks agreed to participate in this study. And what they discovered was that when Republicans are given information, real information, about who Donald Trump is and what he's up to. This is a study that was analyzed by the Washington Post. It was 1,200 Americans who were involved in it. Quoting from a piece by Matthew Chapman over at Raw Story, the study enrolled over 1,200 Americans in a news portal service that covered subjects like the Russian scandal and the Mueller investigation. Some of the 1,200 got more of it, some of the 1,200 got less of it. In some cases, it kind of matched Fox's reporting, which is like pretty much ignore all the bad news about Trump. And in other cases, they simply told the bad news about Trump. This is what the authors of the study wrote, quote, we found that only Republicans were significantly influenced by the scandal coverage or lack thereof. In fact, they said Democrats had non-statistically significant reactions. Well, why would that be? Because Democrats are taking their news from a whole variety of sources and they know how corrupt Trump is. They know about the Trump crime family. They know what a criminal this guy is. Then they go on to say, those who saw comparatively more Trump-Russia stories rated his job performance 7.5% lower than Republicans who did not read those stories and rated their positive emotions toward Trump, like pride, enthusiasm, hope, 10.9% lower than those kept in the dark. In other words, they say, this is from the study, from the authors of the study. In other words, simply changing the balance of scandal headlines that they saw was enough to change Republicans' attitudes towards Trump. Now, 
I don't know of anything that makes a stronger case for progressive media than that. Meanwhile, over on the conservative side, and this is perhaps one of the things that I didn't add to my list. Eric Bowler writing for uh, Daily Kos, he says, there's one way to try to halt public debate in this country, threaten mass violence and people's bloody revolt in the streets. And that's, it turns out, what the right-wing media is doing. Megan McCain on The View said, if you take people's guns away from them, there's going to be a lot of violence. What you're calling for is civil war, warned Fox News' Tucker Carlson. What you are calling for is an incitement to violence. They're talking about Democrats getting elected and pursuing something like background checks or an assault weapon ban. Bullet writes, it's an ominous and long-held belief among conservatives and conservative media outlets that citizens need to be fully armed in order to one day wage war on the American government as a kind of second American civil war. This is what they think the Second Amendment was passed for. Uh, this, of course, has nothing to do with the Second Amendment. And then they point out that the movement spiked with the election of President Barack Obama in 2009. Far-right uh, Newsmax columnist determined that a, quote, military coup to resolve the, quote, Obama problem was not, quote, unrealistic. Following Sandy Hook, Eric Bowler writes, following the Sandy Hook school massacre, Fox's Todd Starnes warned that there would be, quote, a revolution end quote, if the government tries to, quote, confiscate our guns. While Fox News' Pat Cadell claimed that the country was, quote, in a pre-revolutionary condition and on the verge of an explosion. This was after Obama was elected. Oh, my God, a black man in the White House? Now you've got Trump saying, hey, you know those Bahamian refugees? Marco Rubio, for goodness sakes, is tweeting out that Bahamians can come to the United States without a visa. They just can't have a criminal record. It's just that simple. And Trump now goes on TV and says, oh, yeah, there's some really bad people, just like those Mexicans. You know, there's, there's rapists and rot. Well, actually, he says there's drug dealers and gang members is what he's what he's really saying is they're black people. It is getting grim. So what happens if this continues? What happens if the demonization of black people, Hispanics, Jews, and other minority groups in the United States that have been so much a part of what Trump is doing. What if that continues? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Not to mention the demonization of you and me, of progressives. How does that play out? Joe Biden over the weekend, (laughs) God bless him, You know, I have some concerns about Joe's gaffes. In fact, I have a lot of concerns about Joe's gaffes. Again, I don't think this is all tied to his age. In fact, I don't even think most of it is. This is the reason why, you know, he's run for president three times and each time he's had a bit of a challenge. But this one was great. He he called him Donald Hump. And then he says, oh, guess that was a Freudian slip or words to that effect. Uh, Yeah. Well, and so I tweeted out, you know, good on you, Joe. Look at Stormy Daniels, look at Karen McDougal, look at the 20 other women who all say that Donald Trump humped them or tried to hump them uh, without their permission. And uh, maybe we should start calling him Donald Hump. I don't know. It probably, you know, it's probably not going to catch on. I tried the hashtag Donald Hump and it didn't go anywhere. So, but I thought Joe Biden was onto something. But anyhow, this corrupt baseline is just like spreading across America other corruption in the Trump administration. It's like so much. It's like, where do you start? Well, more than half of the people set to lose access to food stamps. Yes, we have in America children going hungry every night. We have adults going hungry 
We have people sleeping on the streets. We have people homeless and jobless all over this country. You do not see these kinds of problems in other developed countries. Literally, you don't. Just in the United States. And Trump's answer, cut, cut the food stamps. Cut them off the food stamps. 400,000 people in Texas are going to lose SNAP benefits, food stamps. 328,000 people in Florida are going to lose food stamps. 200,000 people in New York State. 97,000 people in Georgia. 176,000 people just right across the border from us in Washington State. They're set to lose food stamps. Two out of every 13 SNAP households in Minnesota and Texas are going to have to figure out a different way to, to get their food. And we're not talking big bucks here. We're talking about less than $3 a day is what food stamps provide. It's not like people are living high on the hog. And what's going to happen when the food stamps go away? These folks are going to turn to cheaper and cheaper food. And what's the cheaper and cheaper food? The ultra-processed food, the food that you buy at the dollar store, the food you buy at fast food restaurants. And what happens when you eat ultra-processed foods? Your rates of diabetes, obesity, heart disease, and cancer all explode. A direct correlation between cancer rates, the, one of the leading causes of cancer, if not the leading cause of cancer right now in the United States, is obesity. 40,000 people a month die of obesity. We have a, 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 this explosion in heart disease, this explosion in, in type 2 diabetes that is tied to obesity. Where is the obesity coming from? Processed foods. Food in fast food restaurants, food that is frozen, food that is canned, food that is packaged in a way that its shelf life is four years or longer. You know, they say if there's a nuclear war, the only thing that will survive are Twinkies and cockroaches. These processed foods are poison for us, and yet they're cheap. So as Trump is killing food stamps to 3.5 million people, what's going to happen? Those people are going to be eating more processed foods because they're cheaper foods. And they're going to start experiencing more obesity, more diabetes, more heart disease, and more cancer. And instead of having 40,000 people a month die from obesity-related or diet-related diseases, we're going to have 50,000 or 60,000. I mean, we're pretty bent out of shape about the fact that we had 30, 40 people die in gun massacres in the last month. This is huge. And Bill Maher was ranting about this, although I'm not. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Bill was saying, you know, hey, let's shame fat people. I'm saying let's give people the resources to buy good food. We'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Revolution of Values by Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, the subtitle Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. This is from the introduction titled Moral Clarity and the Fog of War. Since the late 1970s in America, political operatives have invested money and energy in framing the cultural concern of conservative white Christians as the moral issues in our public life. This framing was the explicit agenda of many of the organizations that built a religious right, but it has become commonplace across political and religious divides in America's public square. Whether you agree with them or not, conservative white evangelicals serve as the spokespersons for morality on the evening news. This was not always the case. Just half a century ago, the most famous religious leader in America was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In the context of the civil and human rights movement of the 1960s, voting rights, equal protection under the law, economic justice, peace, and the environment were widely recognized as moral issues. 
Americans from different racial and religious groups certainly did not agree on how to address these issues, but they were consistently addressed as moral issues. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church in the 1980s and the 1990s during the heyday of the moral majority movement and the emergence of the Christian Coalition, both of which mobilized conservative white evangelicals to join the Republican Party and hold on to, quote, traditional values. In that context, I learned to understand myself as a Christian at war with the dominant culture. Anxious that our way of life was passing away as the world around us became more diverse, my white evangelical culture taught me to turn to the Bible for solace and direction. As in any battle, our leaders argued about strategy. Should we seek political power to influence legislation or try to influence popular culture? Should we engage more in public life or retreat to spaces where we could avoid the culture's corrupting influence? Should we attempt to use culture, try to change culture, or even build a counterculture? These questions animated a lively debate within white evangelicism for decades. But amidst the back and forth about strategy and tactics, most people came to agree that Americans were, in fact, at war. James Davison Hunter, a sociologist attuned to the ways elites and institutions were shaping public conversations in the late 20th century, named the phenomena in his 1994 book, Culture Wars. Quote, America is in the midst of a culture war that has had and will continue to have reverberations, not only within public life, but within the lives of ordinary Americans everywhere, end quote. Describing the institutions that had lined up across from one another in American public life, Hunter noted the historic divisions in the nation had shifted. Religious people no longer divided themselves along the denominational lines that had shaped public engagement for most of American history. Increasingly, Hunter observed, Americans saw themselves on one side or the other of a war between traditional morality and progressive values. This wasn't just about left versus right in politics, though the culture wars inevitably shaped where people stood with regard to partisan issues. The divide between orthodoxy and progressivism was more fundamental, Hunter argued. People on each side increasingly understood their way of seeing the world as fundamentally incompatible with their enemies across the battle line. In the realignment that Hunter described, Americans who looked to the Bible for moral authority were asked to line up against progressive values and policy proposals that sought to expand rights and alleviate poverty. In the name of defending traditional morality in a biblical worldview, I was taught to fight against policy proposals that were advocated by marginalized and vulnerable sisters and brothers who were crying out for justice in public life. On the front lines of the culture war, many who had committed to follow Jesus as Lord realized we had been deployed to fight against the people through whom Jesus promised to be present in Matthew 25. How did white Christian nationalists wrest America's public moral narrative away from the civil rights movement and persuade many people of faith to defend white cultural values in the name of Jesus? This question has haunted me since. As a young man on my way out of the religious right, I met black Christians who taught me another way of following Jesus in public. 20 years later, after the election of Donald Trump, I wrote Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion, to say what I had learned from the black-led freedom movement about how white identity politics distorted American Christianity's understanding of everything from personal salvation to shared public witness. But as I taught that long history in churches and seminaries across the country, I quickly realized that slaveholder religion's more recent impact on American public life was the pressing concern, not only for Christians struggling to understand public witness, but also for the wider American public that simply could not comprehend how white Christians who claimed to be concerned about morality could stand by a president who was so obviously and egregiously immoral. I wrote this book both for those who share my experience in white Christian institutions 
and for the many who do not, because the false moral narrative of the tradition I was raised in has impacted everyone caught up in the American story. Revolution of Values is a search for clarity on behalf of a people who lost our way in the midst of the culture wars. Such confusion was not uncommon in the fog of war, veterans remind us. A sensitive and discerning judgment is called for, Karl von Clausewitz writes in his famous treatise on war, a skilled intelligence to send out the truth. My methodology has been to set out the truth of what happened to faith in public life by examining the political and economic interests that invested in winning the political allegiance of white evangelicals in the late 20th century. The book, Revolution of Values. People are always asking me, Tom, is the X chair really as comfortable as you say it is? And my answer is always, yes, absolutely. In fact, I probably don't do a good enough job describing just how cool this chair is, how great it feels. So take my advice, get one for yourself and feel it yourself. You'll see what I'm talking about. You will feel what I'm talking about. Thanks to X chairs, 30 day, no questions asked, guarantee of complete satisfaction. You have no risk. So just try it yourself. Once you feel the X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar support, or DVL, you'll understand exactly why I love my X-Chair so much. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and increase your productivity with the right model for, for you from the X-Basic through the X-1 through the X-4. X-Chair can fit your body and your budget. X-Chair's on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com or call one 844 for X-Chair. Go to xchair.com now, X -chair, excuse me, xchair.com now and use the code XWheels and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair. That's xchair.com. List from Politico, the Pentagon plans to divert more than half a billion dollars from construction projects involving schools or childcare facilities on U.S. military installations worldwide in order to pay for Donald Trump's vanity wall. Right. Oh, and it's going to cut through a golf club, a golf course, uh, fancy schmancy subdivision down in Texas that's right on the Rio Grande River. It's, I think it's called Riverside or something like that. And an amazing piece in the Wall Street Journal about hardcore Trump followers who literally follow him from rally to rally. It would be fascinating to know what percentage. I mean, remember the deadheads? People who went, you know, who literally just followed the Grateful Dead wherever they went all the time. They're identifying these folks. So one is Libby DePero, a 64-year-old retiree who tells the journal that she only believes things the president says and attends his rallies so he can personally tell her the news. How else would I know what's going on, she asked. <laughs> Another one, 40-year-old Walmart worker Sandra Kaczynski tells the journal that she credits the president with giving her the courage to stand up to the tyranny of Obamacare. And they quote her saying, because of him, Trump, I decided not to pay for Obamacare and not to pay the fine. And what happened? Nothing. Before, the quiet me would have paid the fine. But Donald Trump told me that we have a voice and now I stand up for myself. And April Owens, a 49-year-old financial manager, told the Wall Street Journal she actually feels addicted to attending the president's rallies. She says, once you start going, it's kind of like an addiction, honestly. I love the energy. I wouldn't stand in line for 26 hours to see any rock band. He's the only person I do this for, and I'll be there as many times as I can. So are these people 5% of his audience or 50% of his audience or more? I don't know the answer to that, but I find the whole phenomenon, the whole, the whole bizarre thing absolutely fascinating. Martha in Carlboro, North Carolina. Hey, Martha, what's up? Donald Trump didn't really 
construct all of this problems, but he's made it his own. He merely personalized it and created a cult, C-U-L-T. Okay, my background is sociology. That word cult scares me to death. Do you remember a cult leader led 900 people to death, talking them into drinking poison? Yeah, Jim Jones. Okay, the first thing a cult leader does is demand loyalty. Mm-hmm. That's why Comey isn't in his job. I ask myself, why are all these people following these stupid orders, you know, that are harming people? Mm-hmm. Because he's created a cult. Yeah, I don't disagree. You need a sociologist here to explain all yeah, that. Or, or, or a psychologist. That's my background, but, but I'm, I'm an older lady now. Yeah, Martha, I think your point is very, very well made. Thank you very much. And, and I've talked about this in the past on this program. Kyle in Waukegan, Illinois. Hey, Kyle, what's on your mind today? Oh, I want to say the deadheads are a heck of a lot smarter than the Trumpers, so. I, you know, anyway. yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> Most deadheads I know don't like Trump. So. Yeah, I've known, I, I, know, I know one deadhead quite well, and he's a very, very smart guy. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you were talking to Elaine Parker. The maybe? Job Creators Network person. Yeah, yes. yeah whatever that means. But yeah. anyway, she was saying that there's 5% wage growth and da-da-da. And right. People fail to remember is in the last year or so, 38 states have raised their minimum wage. You know, independently raised their minimum oh, wage. You're absolutely right. I wish I had thought of that. So you're going from 7.25 to what nine dollars an hour. I mean, that's a massive increase. Right, and in some cases, even a 10 or 12 or 13 dollars an hour. And as they're working their way up right. to 15. And then the other thing that I didn't bring up and probably should have was that. Wage growth is happening really substantially right now at the top end of the scale. People earning over $200,000 a year are seeing you know, substantial, and, and, and frankly, probably over a half a million dollars a year, are seeing substantial increases in their wages because they have some control over their wages, whether they're people like doctors and lawyers who can control you know, what they're charging for their billing hours, or whether they are simply fat cat corporate executives or CEOs who are their pay is determined by their compensation board, and they get to choose the people on the compensation board, who, by the way, are themselves all quite well compensated. You wonder how much that raise in wages, in quotes, that we're seeing across the board is being affected also at the top end. Even though it's a relatively smaller number of people, it's a huge number of dollars. Right. And in the lower end, there's tens of billions of people. But where I was sitting in is the middle. And when I got laid off, I was making $30 an hour. And now, I mean, if I could find a job from $12 to $15 an hour is... And that's it, you know. Yeah. No, this, this, them them $20 an hour jobs are even gone. It's, yeah. The economy is not working yeah. for working people. I'm, I, I, right. I completely not, agree. Right. Not at all. And that's why when, you know, when Republicans do these talking points, I think most people go, yeah, that's not my experience. I mean, it might be some, you know, wealthy Republicans experience, but not mine. Kyle, thanks a lot for the call. Well said. Mike in Chicago. Hey, Mike. I know your knowledge of the Bible is better than mine, so I thought I'd kind of get your input on this thought. Considering that the religious right is mostly run by men, so it should come as no surprise that they continue to ignore the user's manual. So what I was wondering is, in the Bible, there's all these stories when people try to force things, try to get closer to God, like they're trying to do with the end times. They're trying to force the end times. One story that comes to mind is the Tower of Babel, and it seems to me... Each time that people did this, God got a little PO'd, and the result wasn't positive. And there are a lot of stories like that where men just try to do things to kind of work a little end around. 
Yeah, you know, define the will of God is a big theme in the Bible. Uh, but the Bible is also highly patriarchal, highly hierarchical. Women are, with the exception of Mary and, and Mary Magdalene, are pretty much excluded from the Bible. And, you know, in a few cases, Esther, uh, there's a nice story about Esther, you know, the, the queen kind of saving people and being the, the thoughtful, smart one. But those are the exceptions, not the rule. Yeah, the, the religious right, I think, feeds on misogyny and patriarchy and and it's not a good thing. Mike, thanks for the call. Mark in um, Honolulu, Hawaii. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hey, Tom. It's been a great show today. I, I just wanted to ask a question uh, regarding Neil Howell. I know you had him on the program many years ago, and I was wondering if he was talking more about the fourth turning, because we're now in sort of the ninth year of that cycle. And um, yeah. he was the one that really predicted about how you would start to see that disassembly of the post-World War II era. And we're really starting to see that under Donald Trump and also now Boris Johnson in the United Kingdoms. And I was wondering yeah. if... I haven't talked to Neil Howell in years. The last time, I think it was when he was on my TV show on The Big Picture, maybe four or five years ago. I mean, his partner in writing the book, Strauss, died. He passed away. Maybe Sean can drop Neil a note. I don't know what he's up to now, and even if he's still around, I'm not sure that their book, The Fourth Turning, is still in print. I think it is, but it is really a good read. And, and I, in, in my book, The Crash of 2016, which is no longer in print, but you can find, I recap their whole theory and say, this is what we're expecting, and this is, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, Mark, thanks for bringing that to top of mind. One of these days when I'm not right up against a break, I'll share that whole riff about what the fourth turning is and the Strauss and Howe's theory with you. It's been probably, I don't know, six months or a year since I've done so, and it always seems to inform somebody. It's fascinating stuff. Gary in Baden, Pennsylvania. Hey, Gary, what's up? You were talking about the corruption. Yeah. And I think it's at the core. This is my little uh, view here. Uh, as we continue to go down this road of corruption with a presidency that has been devalued across the board mm-hmm. with a gangster mentality, I just like to throw out a little bit of history. Mm-hmm. Somebody once said way back in 1976, being, vice, being nominated for vice president of the United States, mm-hmm. here's what he said. He said, a president isn't elected to do as he pleases. He's elected to do what the people please, and then only as the law allows. Right. Period. We got a guy in there that does what he pleases, and it's intolerable. We got to get to the polls. The reality is, I hope that he's impeached. That's his legacy. Get it on the books. It's his legacy. He'll never get away from it. And get out in the polls and just vote. Just do that. That's being active, number one. Yeah. And by the way, Gary, with regard to impeachment, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she said it in, a, in an interview. If the House impeaches Trump and it goes to the Senate, everybody is bringing their hands and saying, oh, Mitch McConnell will never, you know, and uh, this are the Republicans yeah. who are majority in the Senate, right. they'll never vote to right. convict him. And it'll be like Bill Clinton. It'll just, you know, he'll be vindicated, blah, 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 blah. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, A, do the impeachment hearings anyway, because then, you know, the entire country gets to learn about how deep his criminality and corruption are. And B, send it to the Senate. And when the Republicans, if the Republicans vote to not convict him and remove him from office, 
hang that around their necks like a millstone electorally right. and make that part of your advertising campaigns when you're running for office. I mean, this is powerful stuff. And there's right. a, a fascinating study here about how when Republicans are actually given news stories about how corrupt Donald Trump is, he loses support. The only reason that he's got so much support that's hanging on is because Fox News will not talk about these things and right wing talk right. radio won't talk about these things. And so the consequence of that is a lot of Republicans, you know, good people, people who just, you know, hey, you know, dad was a Republican. I'm a Republican. They're kind of unthinking Republicans. They're living in this media bubble and they have really literally no idea about how serious the crimes and, and corruption that this guy is engaged in are. Right. So in closing, in closing, the American people are very visual. And I think that is a visual thing. And in closing, greed has no heart ever. There you go. Gary, thanks a lot. Good talking with you. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today's book in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Impeachment, a Citizen's Guide by Cass R. Sunstein. This is from Chapter One, titled Majesty and Mystery. It's an old story, and it's probably even true. When the authors of the New American Constitution declared, after their months of work in Philadelphia, that they had finally reached consensus, one Mrs. Powell shouted a question to the revered Benjamin Franklin, then 81 years old. Dr. Franklin, what have you given us, a monarchy or a, a republic? He gave this answer, a republic, if you can keep it. With those words, Franklin deflected the thrust of the question. True, he didn't refuse to answer a republic, he said, and not a monarchy. But in his view, the question wasn't what the framers, a band of good and great men, had given to the American people. The Constitution was not a gift. The question was what we, the people, would do with the framework that the framers had produced. The real agents, the most important actors in the nation's history were and are the you. You have a task, which is to keep it. And what you are to keep is a republic, which is what the American Revolution was fought to establish and which is opposed to what the colonies fought against, a monarchy headed by a king who could not be removed from office and who could rule as a tyrant. From the Declaration of Independence, the history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. Just a few decades before he spoke, Franklin's words would have been unfathomably radical, but he captured the spirit of his age. Here's Alexander Hamilton writing in the very first of the Federalist Papers, which defended the American Constitution to a nation that was sharply divided on whether to ratify it. Hamilton sounded a lot like Franken, though much more grave. Quote, it has been frequently remarked that it seems to have been reserved to the people of this country by their conduct and example to decide the important question, whether societies of men are really capable of, or not, of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. If there be any truth in that remark, the crisis at which we are arrived may with propriety be regarded as the era in which the decision is to be made, and a wrong election of the part we shall act may, in this view, deserve to be considered as the general misfortune of mankind. Franklin, Hamilton, and their colleagues thought a lot about impeachment. In their view, the power to impeach was central to the establishment of, quote, good government from reflection and choice. 
Without the power to impeach, we the people would probably have refused to ratify the convention in the first place, the Constitution. Impeachment laid at the core of the founders' intricate and majestic efforts to balance the defining Republican commitments to liberty, equality, and self-rule with the belief in a strong, energetic national government. In American history, three presidents have been subject to serious impeachment proceedings. Andrew Johnson, Richard Nixon, and Bill Clinton. During the impeachment process against Nixon, I was in my late teens. In a way, the controversy was inspiring. We the people were rising up against a president who had apparently done awful things. But I liked Nixon, and I didn't much like the Democrats, and I was torn. Riveted by the national debates, I wondered, are people trying to impeach Nixon because they hate him and his policies, or because he actually did something terribly wrong? Like many millions of Americans, I also wondered, what is impeachment all about anyway? The very word was unfamiliar and seemed like a kind of relic, something from a bygone age. The nation and Nixon himself received an unforgettable civics lesson back then in the 1970s, but I'm not sure we got a full answer to either question. When I decided to go to law school a few years later, I can't say that I was motivated by the Nixon proceedings, but they certainly helped to inspire my interest in our constitutional system. Like many others in my law school class, I was certain that some courses would be focused on the intriguing questions raised by Nixon's resignation. Above all, what were the framers doing with that impeachment provision? What are high crimes and misdemeanors? But no class spent as much as a single minute on impeachment. It was as if the whole topic was irrelevant, part of history's dustbin, a tiny footnote to the real issues in constitutional law. Sure, we talked about the power of the president, about when he could make war, about what he could do on his own. Impeachment by Cass Sunstein. You know, until last year, I'd never endorsed a weight loss product, but I decided to change that after reading about university research into a molecule that's found in olive oil that regulates appetite. My wife convinced me that there was one that was worth sharing. Well, a year later, I have to say she's right. Louise said once her appetites and cravings were under control, losing weight was easy, and she's kept it off. I've also heard from listeners that it's worked for them, and now my producer, Sean, is trying Ridizone too. The fact that the only ingredient in Ridizone occurs naturally in the body, although in very, very small quantities, and is completely non-stimulant, appealed to both Louise and to Sean. No, no you know, jittery side effects or anything. Um, just, hey, you feel full and, and or less hungry and everything's good. Listen, if you're looking to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Ridgizone a try. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive up to 65% off plus free shipping. Go to Ridgizone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. Ridgizone.com. Promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, Ridgizone.com. We are privileged to have with us Congressman Ro Khanna. Ro Khanna is, Congressman Khanna is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 17th District of California. His website is Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. And his Twitter handle is Rep Ro Khanna, R-O Khanna. And Congressman Khanna, welcome back. It's great to be back on. So we have presumably gun issues and impeachment issues at the very least. Thoughts on those? Those are the two highest priority. As you may have seen, the Judiciary Committee announced that they're actually going to be voting on a formal 
resolution to give them the power to start a impeachment inquiry. And they've clarified that this is going to be a formal impeachment inquiry. They're going to have all the powers that come with that. And I'm glad that they're moving aggressively to do this. Yeah. And guns? Guns. Look, I had called when we were still in recess for the speaker to call us back in, not let us out and force us to vote on the assault weapons ban, on a ban on magazine capacity, uh, high-capacity magazines, and the other 10 pieces of legislation. I think we need to stop equivocating. We don't need more hearings. We just need to get into the chamber and start voting on these things, especially after all that's happened in terms of four or five mass shootings around the country while we were recessed. So I'm going to continue in caucus to advocate for bringing these bills up for a vote this week or next week. Is there any conversation between you and your colleagues or among your colleagues about this whole situation with Afghanistan where Donald Trump Apparently, what was happening was he was having the Trump administration was having talks with the Taliban basically secretly. They had not invited or involved the president of Afghanistan in this. And it reached the point where, well, maybe we can work something out. And at that point, Trump inserted himself. I'm, this is from the news reports I saw this morning in The New York Times. At that point, Trump said, well, I want to be the one who finalizes the deal. So let's just bring these guys to Camp David. And in the process, this was the first that the president of Afghanistan heard about it. And they didn't even tell him what they had preliminarily worked out with the Taliban. And so when it all came out, apparently the president of Afghanistan is like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. And the Taliban is like, you know, we haven't really agreed to anything. And then Trump, you know, doesn't get his way and blows it up. I mean, something weird is going on here. Well, Tom, that's a very accurate summary. I support the idea of getting our troops out of Afghanistan. And I, in fact, along with a number of progressives, have said that we support the president's decision. Here's the problem. It requires diplomacy. It requires statesmanship. It requires a team that knows what they're doing. And this administration has shown a total incompetence to even do what the president's goals are. And so they have gone about this without including the Afghan government, without having a process with all the stakeholders, without having a process of even having the White House on the same page. I mean, you have cases where the former chief of staff, Kelly, said that the administration has the equivalent of three secretaries of state. Competence at some point matters, and it matters particularly in foreign policy. Yeah, absolutely. So let's pick up some phone calls here. Joe and Cupertino, one of your constituents, on the line with Congressman Khanna. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Congressman. Congressman Connor, I, I know you probably know Evan Lowe, our assemblyman. He's a forwarded a bill. Well, it's an appropriations now to allow 17-year-olds to vote in the state of California. I'm wondering if Governor Gavin Newsom signs the bill in California and allows 17-year-olds to vote. Would you be willing to sponsor an amendment to the 26th Amendment of the Constitution to allow 17-year-olds to vote in a federal election? I'm open to having folks vote at a younger age at 17. One of the reasons I think that that is good is you're still in high school and you haven't often moved away from home. And that allows you to vote in your first election in the community where you grew up. What often happens is when you're 18, if you go to college or you go get a job somewhere else and you move away, right when you're eligible to vote, you don't feel connected to the community where you're voting. And I think that's a big disincentive to getting people into the habit of voting. I'd rather they do it in their senior year. There is legislation at the federal level already to explore changing the voting age that I have supported. 
And I'm glad that Evan Lowe is uh, pushing this in California's assembly. I think the other big push that they're using as a rationale in California is that there are now several studies showing that the earlier young people get engaged in politics, the more likely they are to vote. And if you know that you can vote, you're more likely to be interested in politics. It seems like a good, good addition. And I think making it part of your senior year and having schools help prepare people for that is could be a game changer. Yeah, amen. Omar in Herndon, Virginia, you're on the air with Congressman Connick. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, I just had a quick question, Congressman. Do we have any legislation right now that we can pass to prevent these companies from filing for bankruptcy so they will not pay any pensions? Is that, is that something on the table? Is anybody working on that? Is that a bill? or anything that we can pass as a law since we control Congress? Boy, this goes all the way back to, what was it, Pan Am during the Reagan administration? Yeah, no, Omar, it's a great question, because right now, when these companies declare bankruptcy, such as Toys R Us or Sears, they do not have the severance payments as a priority, and they have to pay off other creditors before they have to pay off often employees. And we are working on legislation, and Elizabeth Warren, I know, has worked on legislation to prioritize the money that employees are owed within the bankruptcy process, as opposed to prioritizing lenders or those who own stock. And that needs to be a change in the bankruptcy law. Paul in Lucerne, California, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. How's it going, sir? I appreciate all your hard work and you represent the Bay Area with honor and dignity. I come from the Bay Area. It's my hometown. I'd like to talk about the START Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Range Treaty. That's a very big deal. We can't get into another arms race with Russia. And besides, Russia has repeatedly, repeatedly said that if we ever get into a war with America, we reserve the right to use tactical nuclear weapons. And these are the nuclear weapons that the START Treaty Limited pretty much did away with. And now it seems like it's up for renewal or it's, it's disappearing. I thought the treaty was lasted forever and had to be ratified two-thirds and all that. What, what's going on with that? And can I toss another question into that, which is, is China a party to that treaty? And if not, should they be? Paul, it's an excellent question. You're absolutely right. These treaties often require two-thirds of the Senate. They're very hard to get done. It was Reagan who actually got this done with Gorbachev, a conservative president who was a hardliner against communism. Unfortunately, a lot of these treaties have a provision that allows for the unilateral withdrawal by an American president. And one of the things I think we ought to be considering when we get into these treaties is not make it so easy for unilateral abrogation of a treaty by the executive. You should probably have to go to Congress to get out of these treaties, given how hard it is to get into these treaties in the first place. I completely agree with you that it's a mistake to get out of these treaties. The biggest beneficiary from a stable world and a world without the threat of nuclear proliferation is the United States, because we have the most to lose. We have the biggest economy in the world. We have the strongest military in the world. So having tactical nukes be a threat actually hurts us far more than it hurts any other country. And that's why for 70 years, there was almost bipartisan consensus that we want to build stability in the world order. That theory has been rejected 
rejected by people like John Bolton, who want to see an arms race. And I think they're doing tremendous damage. Now, China isn't a part of that treaty. And a thoughtful foreign policy would have said, let's expand the START agreement to include China. Let's strengthen it. Let's figure out where places there may be cheating and let's work to eliminate that. But you don't just throw out the whole agreement like Trump has done. Morris, listening on KPFK in Los Angeles, you're in Long Beach, actually, you are. You are on the air with Congressman Khanna. I believe that a coup has taken place in this country. The uh, Ways and Means Committee chairman has requested the president's taxes, and he's been giving a resounding no. I think you folks should employ your inherent contempt and go pick up Mr. Uh, Steve Mnuchin and give Mr. Trump's taxes, because we think a coup has been taken over and is taking place in this country. Everybody else has to bow down to taxes. Why not this guy? Thank you, sir. I agree with you that the Congress has the right under the law to get these tax returns. Chairman Neal meticulously prepared the case. Steve Mnuchin is not complying. And we're going to go first to the courts and have the courts issue an order. And then I think the Treasury Department will have no choice but to comply with the court order. Richard in Catering, Ohio, watching Free Speech TV on a Roku box. Hey, Richard, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. I wanted to ask the congressman to give us an update on the attempts to get administration officials to comply with all the subpoenas that they're ignoring. Richard, we're pushing aggressively to get those subpoenas in force in the courts. I do think Jerry Nadler opening an impeachment inquiry will give us greater power to be able to enforce these subpoenas. Once we have a court order for the subpoenas, then it becomes very hard for administration officials to defy that because then they would literally be held in contempt of court. And that's a much more serious matter than just being held in contempt of Congress, which is a mark of shame, whereas being held in contempt of court, you literally could be sentenced to prison. Richard, watching Free Speech in Amarillo, Texas. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Good morning. I was just going to ask if they were really passing a bill for people that retired from civil service and also paid into Social Security, if they were going to get their full amount of Social Security or be penalized because of retiring from the civil service. Richard, I think they need to be able to get their full Social Security. This also applies to teachers. If they have worked in another job sometimes and they get a pension, they should still be entitled to their full Social Security benefits. There is legislation on your point. I'm supporting that legislation. We just need to get a progressive Senate and president to be able to pass it. Congressman, if I can just follow up on that. I'm on the mailing list for FreedomWorks, the organization that I believe the Koch brothers, if they didn't start it, certainly heavily funded. And basically, pitches this libertarian, semi-Republican line. And they have been aggressively trying to enlist me and, and presumably all of the people on their mailing list. I mean, it's just, you know, I'm just another right. person in a campaign to end the income tax that is placed on Social Security benefits. Now, this is something that was added during the Reagan administration and, you know, has been here ever since the Reagan administration. And, you know, I think it didn't make a lot of sense to a lot of us, but why this libertarian group is saying end the income tax on Social Security, is this part of a push to end income taxes altogether? I know that they're opposed to the income tax period. Or is this, are they trying to paint the Democrats as being responsible for what Reagan did? Or is it even more insidious than that? Are they trying to, you know, say, wow, we need to have an open discussion about Social Security so they can go back to George Bush's 2005 sales pitch, which is let's privatize the whole system and give it over to the New York banks. 
fascinating that they would be pushing for I've that. I've gotten I mean, like five or six way. of them in the last six months. I mean, it's every yeah, second I don't know or third if week. The catch to it. I mean, I'm happy to look into it. I mean, look, if uh, they want to figure out a way of expanding the Social Security benefit by having a progressive tax exemption for those who are getting uh, benefits on, and have an income under a certain level, that seems something that we could work with. But my guess is uh, there's a catch to it or an ulterior agenda that it's not as simple as uh, let's expand benefits for people who are having a tough time keeping up with the cost of living. But I'll ask some of my conservative colleagues to see what's going on. Yeah. I'm just baffled by this. And anyhow, Mike in Richmond, California, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hi, good morning. Listen, I have an issue. I donate a lot of money to organizations, veterans, animal organizations. I'm recently getting a lot of requests for money to help the hurricane victims. And, you know, my concern or, or what frustrates me, I guess is a better word, is I pay my income tax, I pay my sales tax, I pay my property taxes. The government gets about half of my money. So what I'm wondering is, if somebody's house blows down in a hurricane, then why are they asking me for money? Why doesn't the government just say, hey, man, you know, here's the money that you need to rebuild your life? You know, because it's, it's heartbreaking to me. But, you know, it's like I already gave at the office. You know what I mean? I, I don't have anything to give you, and I wish that I did. But what's going on with the taxes where regular working class people like me are being asked to give even more than we already have? Got it, Mike. Congressman, I think this speaks to this widespread perception being promoted on right wing talk radio that large chunks of your taxes are going to relief programs, welfare, basically to human beings, which is not the case. It is not the case. It's actually a lot of the taxes have gone to defense and a lot of them have gone to causes that aren't helping actually people. But I think Mike raises a an important point, which is that we can't just rely on charity to have a basic social compact, that we have taxes in this country, people pay those taxes, and then we have the government that has an obligation to take care of people when there is a natural disaster, to help people with health care, with education. And as a working American, that Mike is, if he's paying his taxes, uh, people who are rich should pay their taxes, and government needs to do more. And what we can't say is, okay, let's just raise money through charity and ask people to contribute. That's not sufficient in a civilized society in the richest country in the world. Yeah. What should we be looking at in the week going forward, and where should we focus our activism, whether it's doing something, joining something, or calling members of Congress? Well, I think this country is demanding action on gun violence. If people are talking to members of Congress and holding us accountable, saying, what are you doing? What are you passing? And of course, the Senate, why aren't you allowing a vote on basic gun violence legislation? Second, I think being very crystal clear and holding us accountable for an aggressive impeachment inquiry that is going to lead to some resolution. And finally, the Oversight Committee holding this president accountable for the sale of his office. Congressman Khanna, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Congressman Ro Khanna, his website, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 